You're listening to City Beat, a partnership between Riverwest Radio and online daily UrbanMilwaukee.com. I'm your host, Jeremy Janine, president and co-founder of Urban Milwaukee, and today we're going to spend the next half hour looking over recent news affecting the city. Today we will look at a debate surrounding the city's $40 million contribution to the $285 million Komatsu deal, believed to be the largest urban manufacturing proposal being discussed in the United States. We'll also touch on three new public art installations that have appeared downtown, a proposal to redevelop three of the city's oldest buildings, and a marketplace that has risen like a phoenix in Sherman Park. Most importantly, we have a guest. We are joined in person by architect Chris Sosha. Chris, a principal at TKWA Urban Lab, is the man behind the design of the dramatic redevelopment for the planned re-envisioning of Grand Avenue Mall downtown. And we'll end the show where we always do a pedestrian observation about how we can build a better city. This time, we will discuss pattern languages and how they can lead to better design. I think our guest might have some opinions. Stay with us. Tuesday morning at City Hall, city officials spent over two hours debating the $285 million Komatsu deal. It's been lauded by many, but at least one person at City Hall isn't having it. Alderman Robert Bauman poured cold water all over the project Tuesday morning. The project was before the Zoning, Neighborhoods, and Development Committee. The city would allocate $25 million in the form of a grant to Komatsu if they're able to deliver 1,300 jobs to a site in the Harbor District. The alderman is not happy with the base level of that deal, which is $18 million, if Kumatsu manages to bring, for the first 12 years, just their existing employment base of 598 people from nearby suburban West Milwaukee. Uh, He also isn't happy that the city is on the hook to pay $15 million for the Riverwalk segment, unlike much of the city where the Riverwalks are financed between a partnership of the city and the nearby property owner. The city, in this case, would own nearly a mile in length of new Riverwalk but that would come with the city having to pay for all of it. And the city would be repaid through incremental property taxes on this deal. There's a whole lot to this. I'm not going to bore you with the details on the radio, but if you're interested in it, check out Eyes on Milwaukee. Committee okays $40 million for Komatsu. That's at urbanmilwaukee.com. Jumping into our next story so we can get to our guest, and also because it's a visual story that maybe just isn't perfect for the radio, but we'll have a suggestion for you at the end. Three new pieces of art have emerged downtown in as many weeks. Led by Milwaukee Downtown, the Business Improvement District, two bus shelters have been decorated with new art. They're both on Wisconsin, or they're both on Water Street, uh, just south of the intersection with Wisconsin Avenue and just north of it. A parking garage has also received a bit of lipstick in the form of a new mural from artists Fred Kames and John Kowalczyk. All three are part of an incremental approach the bid is taking to improve the visual image of downtown. They've also in recent years launched the Sculpture Milwaukee Project, which has been a tremendous success, and they've delved into painting public infrastructure. They hired artist Mauricio Ramirez to touch up a number of utility boxes along Wisconsin Avenue. Well, these new pieces are kind of branching off from Wisconsin Avenue and really trying to add life. Uh, Do they succeed? Do they not? You can judge for yourself by going to urbanwalkie.com and reading our piece, Friday Photos, Artist, Bid, and Live in City Streets. Or, you know, you can simply go for a walk downtown and check them out for yourself. Far west side of the city, Another new proposal broke this week, or a request for proposals, actually. The United States Department of Veterans Affairs, uh, which runs the Zablocki Center, 
maintains, uh, and maintains maybe a loose word for the status of some of these buildings, but a complex behind it that dates back to the Civil War, and it's made up of 43 buildings. It's known as Soldier's Home. Well, there's been a large push in recent years to redevelop that complex, not to tear it down, but to adaptively reuse those buildings, largely as housing for homeless veterans. The old main, which is the kind of iconic building at the center of it, is being redeveloped by the Alexander Company. That's about to break, or not break ground, but start construction in early 2019. But the VA has issued a request for proposals this week for three buildings to be redeveloped. They do not need to be redeveloped as housing. So it'll be interesting to see if things like the Ward Memorial Theater, can that be redeveloped as something that takes an advantage of its location on the Hank Aaron Trail? The entire complex is among the oldest buildings in the city. It was built between 1865 and 1930. It was designed as a refuge for soldiers. Feel free to check out uh, the article and learn a lot more. We've had ex extensive coverage over the years on this. Eyes on Milwaukee, VA re redeveloping more of Soldiers' Home. And our last uh, thing to touch on is the Sherman Phoenix. I had the chance to see it uh, firsthand this past weekend. It opened on November 30th, so I, I let them work out the kinks for about a week. Uh, it was tremendous to see just how far along it is. But if you're wondering what that is, it's the former BMO Harris Bank building built in the 1920s for the Sherman Park State Bank at 35th and Fond du Lac. It's a tremendous re-envisioning by developer Julie Kaufman and her partner Joanne Sabir at what is a new marketplace. I don't want to call it a food hall necessarily, but it's in that realm because a lot of their tenants do stuff well beyond food. And this, I think, besides being something you should go check out, is the perfect time to segue into our guest. Uh, Chris is here because he is involved in designing a new food hall and, well, a lot more beyond that. Chris, thanks for joining us. Why don't you tell us a bit about what you're up to? Sure. Thanks, Jeremy. Appreciate you having me here today. As you mentioned, I'm a principal and architect at Kubala Washako Architects. We're a Cedarburg-based uh, design firm, and I lead our Milwaukee-based office called Urban Lab, or TKWA Urban Lab. We're in Walker's Point. We've been there for almost two years now. And so I've been working with the owners of what is now called The Avenue, formerly known as The Grand Avenue, uh, for nearly three years uh, in sort of reconsidering what can happen with uh, a, a, what is effectively a, a dying downtown urban mall. Um, when I came on the scene, there were a handful of shops, you know, still operating a food court that resembled sort of a, a 1980s food court on the third floor. And we were given in a lot of ways sort of carte blanche in terms of and when are we talking about? When did we you are come talking, on the scene? We came on the scene um, roughly January of 2016. And really, we started thinking about this project and the area almost two years before that when we were doing a study um, of Westtown that was looking specifically at 4th and Wisconsin as a, a surface parking lot across from the convention center that's been dormant since about 1985. And it was really through this study that asked a really uh, important question, why was Westtown less alive, less vibrant, if you will, than, say, East Town, Third Ward, Walker's Point, and other uh, adjoining neighborhoods. We sent that off to the owners of the mall, who, for the first time in decades, we had local owners uh, you know, steering the, the future course of, of the Grand Avenue, and it was an opportunity to finally influence change. So we sent them this study and said, listen, there's a lot that needs to be healed, and you're a big part of the problem. We can help you out. So, so this is before you get the job. You're just, hey, guys, I have this plan. Check it out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We, we, um, I, I had an in to Tony Janowick, who is one of the, uh, uh, the prime partners in the ownership group, and he, he runs interstate parking. And I, I, I remember thinking, ironic that 
I'm potentially going to work with the owner of surface parking lots to bring life back to the heart of the city. It just, it seemed like a disjointed idea. But um, through his wife, who was looking to do a project at the mall, she made the introduction and said, uh, Tony, you really need to be working with Chris and his team as, as you reconsider what could happen here. And, and who are the other owners in the mall? So there are multiple owners. Uh, Tony Janowick is one. Josh Krisnick, who is with Hempel Companies, he's actually located in Minneapolis, but he's here in Milwaukee almost every week. Uh, Chuck Biller is also part of the interstate team. And there are other um, uh, owners in this group that have kind of a smaller share. Really, in the end, it's Josh and Tony that are the ones guiding the project. And as a bit of background on the mall, we have what you think of as the mall is what you see along Wisconsin Avenue. I think you described the intersection of 3rd and Wisconsin as the intersection of Maine and Maine. It should be this really active place. But one of the things that's happening is behind the mall is really what Tony was interested in when he bought it, a 1,700-car parking garage. And as Josh told me in an interview last week, they paid $23 million for the mall. I think I have that figure right. And $1.5 million, or I have this backwards. See, this is why I need to talk out loud. They had paid $23 million for the parking garage and a million and a half dollars for the mall. So the mall was this kind of thing they were stuck with, and it turned out you were a guy with ideas. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they make the joke pretty often that they, they bought a parking structure and happened to get a mall, and it happened to be three city blocks in the heart of downtown. And so um, they know how to run parking, and, and they know how to do that very well. They didn't have as clear ideas, you know, in terms of how you can bring this this very large thing that that is is institutional in some ways. It, 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 so many people that have grown up in the city or have spent time here have some relationship to the Grand Avenue and have memories of it. And so we helped them chart a course that thought about, you know, as retail is changing uh, everywhere today, how do you take something and, and, and repurpose it so it has value in today's today's world? And let's, let's talk about the mall because it's got this perception that, you know, now it's close to vacant. I saw it last week. It, it's clearly there. But when you start on the project, there was was there over a hundred leases that were actually active in the mall, or something near that? Yeah, you, you'd be surprised what was going on. You know, frankly, I hadn't spent a lot of time in the Grand Avenue outside of my studies of it, and I, I've been going to the downtown Y for years, so I was always above it, but never really in it. And w when I started spending more time there, I realized, you know, there there are in fact a lot of businesses here. You know, they. Um, were sort of unusual. Some were smaller in scale. There were actually a number of offices at one point over in the Plankington Arcade. And so, but the, many of these were businesses that were turning over pretty quickly that weren't attracting uh, necessarily a, a, a lot of foot traffic. And so these were businesses, a lot of them just on five-day-out leases. Some had more term, like up in the food court where you had more notable, um, you know, like uh, restaurant franchises. Yeah, I think Rocky Rococo probably had been there since the moment the mall opened in the 1980s. Uh, I feel like Milwaukee Record will never never <laughs> forgive me for, <laughs> for Rocky Rococo's demise in the Grand Avenue. <laughs> well, I guess let's talk about that, because there's, there's big things that were announced last week, but I think to the credit of the mall's developers and you, there was stuff that's already underway. Talk about, we had a lot of news last week, but what's happened since this big plan was unveiled a year or two ago. Right. So in April of 2016, we unveiled really the first glimpse of a vision for what, what this place could become. Again, three city blocks transformed. And, and, and the thesis was, effectively, you take the third and second floors and um, create office space. You move a food-centered business to the first level. And in the Plankington side, which is immediately east of what we know as sort of uh, the more mall atrium-like experience, 
Uh, the idea there was to take the second floor, which was currently office spaces and some, some retail mixed in, and convert it to 52 market rate housing units, so apartments. Below that, it will remain retail. Um, I'm, I'm blanking all of a sudden. Uh, TJ Maxx is, is the uh, retailer that will stay there for a while. There's space just west of them that is to be determined. A, a grocery store is really what they're aiming for. So we went. And, and these are the spaces that when you're in the skywalk coming through the historic part of the mall, you look down, you see empty space, correct? Yeah. Or not necessarily empty in the case of TJ Maxx, but open space. It's open to the second level. Open space. And it is a phenomenal space. You know, this is the, the John Plankington building. This was really uh, a historic arcade, uh, which, you know, arcades were prominent in the country in, you know, say the early 1900s. And describe an arcade because sure. you don't mean video game. Bar. I don't I, as much as I would love it to be. But no, what I mean by that is really an arcade generally describes a building that has um, columns that are at sort of a frequent interval that defines space behind it. And, and in this case, it was a retail shop. So when the Grand Ave was, was re, kind of reinvigorated in 1982, the planking building had long ex- existed, but it was a more inward and outward focused building. It had retailers going out into Wisconsin Avenue, as well as kind of the internal core, which has a soaring atrium. There's the statue of, of John Plankington, which a lot of people are probably familiar with as a fountain kind of at the base of a circular stair. And what we did is we took the second floor, which has a series of, of arcaded spaces, meaning uh, walls that are demised about every 20 feet or so. They formerly housed um, uh, retail shops, and we're, we converted them into apartments. It's going to be unusual in the sense that some of these apartments will face interior only, meaning they're looking into the interior skylit space and they will also have new skylights above they're actually really really neat units well describe what that is because that that kind of scares me like hey this is a unit that is on a skywalk system that doesn't seem like somewhere i want to live but everyone keeps talking about it like it is so tell me more yeah we actually um learned of a project in in rhode island in providence and they they have one of the oldest um arcades in the country and again, it had a retail use for a long time. That, that died out. And the developers that took that over took the third floor and converted it in exactly into what we're doing here, where it was, um, I think they had something like 40-some uh, micro-apartment units. And from what I understood, these things leased out uh, quickly, and they had hundreds, if not thousands, of people on a waiting list to get in. And what's really neat about them is you're in sort of a soaring, uh, soaring space, you know, very tall ceilings, really incredible daylight. And frankly, unique units. And so what we what we learned in that project is the units, so imagine your living room really came right up to the skywalk edge in our case. So imagine what would have been a, a retail storefront would have been your storefront, if you will, for your living room. And what happened in the Providence project is the, the uh, blinds were often drawn. So they are just close. So you'd be walking by and you'd see basically, you know, drawn shades. And so we didn't like the fact that you kind of like just darkened out uh, uh, the, the the fronts of these, what would have been sort of, you know, transparent windows. And what we decided to do is create effectively a porch space in the skywalk. So there's a transition zone. It's about six, seven feet deep. That's effectively, imagine your outdoor porch that's just outside of your unit, but and going right up to the edge of the public skywalk. So it's sort of like a, 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 a zone where you're not completely on display in your interior unit. You kind of have an exterior-like setting, and it's, it's a buffer zone, if you will. So I have 
a, a solid wall. It's, yep. it's glass wall, though, right? It's a right? glass wall. And then I have six, seven feet of space. Yep. And then I can walk in, actually, to my unit where the privacy starts. That's exactly right. How do you envision people using that space? Is it just a coming and going space? Is it where I store my bicycle? Well, we hope you would treat it just like you would, um, say, an east side front, front porch. You know, So that's where you're out reading a book. That's where you're just spending some time in a really kind of cool environment um we there the owners are actually going to control pretty tightly that you can't just fill this space with your stuff could you put a bike there yeah maybe you could um but you know it, it doesn't want to become a dumping ground for storage and so actually the way this works is it's it's what we call a, a double loaded corridor meaning most of the tenants are actually going to enter from the inside of the unit, meaning there's an internal corridor that serves two sets of apartments, that's probably going to be the way uh, residents primarily enter their space, but they will have the option to go through what would be uh, previously a more like commercial retail doorway. Okay, and when, what's the timeline on that? Because I've seen them, they're, they're yeah. kind of there. So the project's been under construction for well over six months now. Uh, the first units are set to deliver within the month, so let's say towards the end of December, and they'll continue, they're going to uh, deliver the apartments in quadrants. There's four quadrants to this mall. Uh, the last quadrant is set to be delivered sometime in mid-March of 2019. So, so working east to west on the mall, we have the historic Plankington building, first floor, staying commercial space. Correct. Second floor, becoming apartments. Above it, the mall act, own, the new mall owners don't actually own that, but that's there's more apartments up there. There's a YMCA you hit on, UWM's up there. So that, that's got a smorgasbord of stuff in that building. Yeah. Now let's talk about what's happening in the 1980s portion of the mall, where I think your challenges might have even been greater. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. So... Um, the 1980s portion, as we as we kind of continue working east to west, what many people will know is the soaring three-story skylit atrium is connected via another arcade that's more glassy in two stories, and and that was home. Uh, it's currently home to Rainbow, uh, which is a, a retail shop, um, and there were other small retailers on on, it's on two levels really. The second level of the West Arcade is currently under construction. And there's about 12,000 square feet of, of space that's being repurposed into a management leasing leasing office for the entire property. Uh, currently, they're in the basement of, of the Plankington building, and they're really hard to find. So this will put them out in the open, and so both the office and residential tenants will have a, a clear home base to go to. There's also an, uh, uh, we call this place Amenity Alley. And so it has a fitness center that will serve office users and residents. And it will also have a, about a hundred person conference center for the office uh, users to share. So when I'm taking the skywalks there from the Chase Tower, I'm going to walk, I'm going to see these, these porches you've designed in these mm -hmm. apartments. Then am I going to see into this fitness center? Or how does that work? Yeah. Yeah. So this is very transparent. So what we're going to do is really kind of uh, demall the area, if you will. So all the demising walls, the retail fronts that are there today, uh, the tenants ha have um, uh, left the building. We're tearing down the storefronts, and we're building all new storefronts. It's actually going to be um, steel and glass uh, combination. We're going to tear down all the finishes in the building. So. There, there's a lot of kind of uh, curious color choices in there right now. A lot of a lot of drywall surfaces, and really, what we're going to do is we're going to strip this building down to its bones. Uh, fundamentally, this is a steel, concrete, and glass building, and we're going to express the rawness of it and and kind of carry that aesthetic all the way through the West Atrium and, and the West Arcade. Well, the, now let's talk about the stuff that people are most excited about. The that is the food hall and then the marquee office tenant above. Tell us more about that, how it came to be. 
um, what kind of different designs you went through, what your challenges are there? Yeah, yeah. So um, the owners, they, they had a vision very early on where they walked into the atrium and saw these very open floor plates, meaning the second and third floor are wide open at the atrium, so a big hole in the middle of this building. And they said, well, you know what? That's actually a lot of area. There's 60,000 square feet on the third floor, uh, roughly, that we're going to have available. Um, there's going to be almost, uh, I believe, about 70,000 square feet, if not more, on the second floor. So what you're talking about is when I'm, if I can jump in my time machine, I'm standing at Rocky Rococo, I'm looking at Culver's. Yep. There's empty space in between. Correct. When you say floor plate, you're envisioning a new floor right there. A, a new floor. So what we're going to do is actually selectively infill some of the floor to add floor area. And, and why that's important is there's not a lot of places downtown where you can give a, an, an office tenant 60,000 square feet of contiguous space. And so we're going to, we have a plan basically that keeps an atrium because we don't want to take the grand out of out of the Grand Avenue or now the Avenue. And we want to preserve the daylight that's coming down from that three-story skylight above. And so we're going to fill in some of that floor. We're going to create really good usable floor area for offices. And all of that will overlook an ultra-dynamic food hall on the first floor. So effectively, we take what was a food court on the third floor and we bring it down to the first level. Well, that sounds like marketing speed. Explain yeah. to me what that actually means in reality. Yeah, sure. Food hall. I, I always have to be careful about that because it, what that is really is it's an industry term in a lot of ways. And it's an industry term you hear in real estate. And what a food hall means is um, really it's a place of, of restaurateurs, so food, beverage, makers, uh, what makes a food hall great, and you can find these all over, you know, they, Manhattan is kind of ground zero of, of, of the greatest density of, of food halls in the world. Places like Chelsea Market, DeKalb in Brooklyn, or um, of, uh, there's many others, and we visited all of them. And basically what you find in all of these is, number one, local offerings. So it's not the old malls of the 80s. They used a recipe, and it was chains. It was chain-driven. Imagine your Orange Julius and your Zabaros. You basically found the same thing in every mall in anywhere USA. So what a food hall is, is it takes the best of what a local place has to offer in terms of food and beverage. You pair that with a really great experience, meaning this is not the food court of your where you go up to a stand, you order your food, and then you take a plastic tray and go to sort of a central seating area and, and, and you're on your way. This is about eating at a unit. You know, it's, it's about like being pulled up to a bar stool, watching a chef at work, having a conversation, learning about, you know, the, the, the food or the, the, the beverages you're enjoying. So I'm going to be able to see into the kitchen in you, some of these cases. You're going to see all of it. So if you spent time at the Milwaukee Public Market, which we happen to be the architects for as well, it's sort of an evolution of that. Uh, and, and that's really where the market has gone today. It started as a traditional market where it was more like, bakery, produce, and, and more of like a European traditional market. And what they found over time is that the demand was for prepared food. And what's happened there slowly is it's gone to more at a market stall experience where you can be right there having an interaction. And so for me, what it boils down to is, is a great food hall is about people watching. So it's about having a spot where you can go there and it's all about kind of taking in the environment. You can be there by yourself with, with somebody else, with a large group of people, but it's all about taking in the energy of the place around you. So am I correct to say, though, that the renderings released last week, we got six of about 20 tenants that are expected. 
but the renderings reflect the principles of what are going to happen, but not exactly what it's going to look like. You said it exactly right. So what, what we have designed thus far is sort of a blueprint or the DNA of the place. What we wanted to figure out is how do you cluster the restaurant tours together in a way that, that makes a dynamic experience? What is the common space? So we, what's really important in a great food hall we found is that you don't want it to just be a big open space. Um, what we what we liked was the idea that there's sort of alleyways, laneways. There's areas that are tight. There's areas that are that are bigger, and what that gives you is just a whole rich variety of experience that can happen. So we we've we've created a a roadmap, and then the folks that will be operating within there can kind of see themselves in a particular area, and we'll design a stall just for them that'll reflect who they are. Well, let's talk about how you arrive at this space, because there's this big glassy atrium, and I believe in the press conference you called it a plug <laughs> yeah. uh, for the city. What did you mean by that? Uh, elaborate on your vision there. Sure. sure. So uh, it's worth going back in time just a little bit to think about what wasn't there before, and that was a building. So 3rd Street, we're talking about here specifically the 3rd Street, or the intersection of 3rd Street and Wisconsin Avenue. 3rd used to go all the way through. It kept continuing south. And and when you said Maine and Bain before, really what, what Maine and Maine is in reference to is Wisconsin Avenue being our main east-west commercial corridor historically. And 3rd third, third Street was the north-south version of that. And, and you'd have to be like 120 years old to remember that. You'd have to be pretty old to remember that. You know, maybe if you were here in the 1940s or 1950s, it would still be special. But yeah. So what happened was in 1982 when they built the new mall, they built a building over 3rd Street. So 3rd Street as it comes from the north, stops when it hits Wisconsin Avenue. And actually, the first iteration of the Grand Avenue had a plaza out front. It didn't have a large glassy box that we see there today that was added in, I believe it was the early 2000s. And so I think the original architects of the of the 82 project were savvy, and then they recognized that this was a special location that deserved sort of an elegant public space in the front. And Historically, you know, you could kind of, as a pedestrian, flow right into right into the interior of the mall. And so, what we're going to do is remove the impediment or the plug in that glassy box, which we've joked is the biggest, you know, smoker's vestibule <laughs> in the city. We're going to get rid of that, and we're going to restore a proper urban plaza that's going to have active use on its edges. That could be a place for us to congregate. That will really be programmed over the years. All right. And what's the timeline to start seeing all this? Sure. So we're right in the midst of design right now. Um, demolition is underway in certain areas as we speak. Um, I would anticipate that the mall will shut down completely in the next, say, four months or so. And hopefully by the end of 2019, um, well, certainly by the end of 19, we're going to see the office tenant moving in the third floor and the food hall should follow shortly thereafter. All right. Well, I think we'll stop our mall talk there because we only have a couple minutes left. This is the part where in the future we're going to insert a fancy graphical audio cue here. We're going to segue over to pedestrian observations, and that is a pattern language, which is something you know a lot about because you use them um, to kind of guide your design principles at TKWA. But what is it? Besides being a thousand-page book by Christopher Alexander, the concept is intended to be a design methodology to construct a truly livable place. Um, you can use them from everything from a neighborhood to a living room, but I'm interested in the 30-second version of how you took the principles of a pattern or patterns 
and kind of diagnosed what Westtown's ills were. Sure. So at its core, a pattern describes the relationship between a reoccurring human activity and a physical space that supports that. Um, that's a fancy way of saying there are th some things just work great in certain area in certain places. And uh, what Alexander identified were reasons why it worked. And so you can scale this up to identifying problems at a very large scale, say an urban scale, and you can scale this down to the most finite issues like, say, locating uh, a window in a room. And so what we did, circling back to the very beginning here, is we looked at Westtown as a whole. And remember, in 2014, Pfizer Forum didn't exist. The MSO hadn't announced their project. The Posner building wasn't under construction yet, so none of the great development that happened was there yet. And we said there are some core issues in Westtown that are inhibiting good stuff from happening. One, the blocks were just too large. So as you're a pedestrian and you're walking in this area, you have to walk a long ways, almost 450 feet on Wisconsin Avenue to get to the next block. That tends to kill street life. Another thing we found that is rather obvious when, when you hear it is there's a huge collection of super block buildings here. Imagine the arenas. These things are all on or all off, and they tend to kill the life of a place when they're all off. So everything that we've done within the Grand Avenue has sought to kind of heal some of these issues related to how do you bring vibrancy back to the pedestrian realm. Well, Chris Social, we'll have to leave it right there. Thank you for joining us. This has been City Beat.